0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, down uh, about halfway through the chapter, a little bit more than half, I guess. It's got 19 verses, and we're looking at verse 12 one week ago today we wrapped up i think the the last details out of verse 11 and uh, i want to get to this warning here in verse 12 and then the encouragement that comes in uh, verse 13. Uh, the example is the exodus generation and it's given to us in verses 7 through 11 a quotation that comes from psalm 95 today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts And I might say the same thing here this morning. We are here to receive the Word of God, so don't harden your hearts. You have ears to hear. Use them. Let us hear what the Spirit has to say. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? most gracious heavenly father we come before you this morning thankful for your truth thankful for your grace thankful for the grace that allows us to be here today um, in the name of jesus christ with his righteousness his merit his worthiness none of us has worthiness ourselves to stand before you and so we don't we stand here in the name of jesus christ and we call upon you and your faithfulness the ministry of your holy spirit to teach us to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake to teach us all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, we thank you for being faithful. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Again, it just boggles the mind that the Creator God is speaking and people close their ears. They say, no, thank you. You know, here's Moses, he's approaching holy ground, and God says, you're approaching holy ground, and take off your shoes, and there's a reverence as we approach. But he welcomes us to approach. And yet there are those that choose not to. There are those that have better things to do on a Sunday morning. Or maybe they show up just to have an external show to impress somebody, but they're not listening. And the scripture says, listen, hear. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the local churches. And so we have this warning and uh, it uses the Exodus generation as the example David uses it in uh, in his generation. Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. The author of Hebrews uses it. I use it. Uh, they're, they're a marvelous example because they are a redeemed people who don't walk by faith. And that's a warning for us. We are a redeemed people. And the fear is not that we lose our salvation. Nobody does. The fear is, though, that we don't walk by faith and then we die in the wilderness, so to speak, as the metaphor would relate to us today. We don't enter into the land of promise, the the land of faith, the land of provision, the land of milk and honey, the land of rest. And we have a daily rest that the Father has designed us for a daily rest that is just as precious, more precious even than the land flowing with milk and honey would have been to the Exodus generation had they been faithful, had they gone in and realized it. So this is what we're going to deal with as we wrap up chapter three and move into chapter four. But we come to a warning and the warning is take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God and this scares a lot of people and it shouldn't it does not mean that you're going to lose your salvation no one does no one can but what does it mean because it is designed to be a scary warning and we want to accept it as a scary warning i don't want an evil unbelieving heart in me and yet i know that i could have one it says any one of you and i've searched the greek i've searched the manuscripts i don't find bob bolander with an exception i don't find anybody with an exception The author of Hebrews includes himself in many of the exhortations throughout this book when he says, let us, and we, and uh, aspects there. And you see how chapter 4 begins, let us fear. The author of Hebrews includes himself. And if the author of Hebrews is vulnerable to this, who do I think I am? I'm vulnerable to this. We all are. Every church-age saint could be vulnerable. And that's why we want to understand this warning for what it is. Alright, so a week ago we dealt with, really we tied together the last bit of verse 11 just to simply highlight the fact that it is um, an oath, I swore in my wrath, The God who cannot lie takes time to take a vow. And he does so three different times. He makes a vow with Abraham. He makes a vow with the Exodus generation. He makes a vow with Jesus. And every time that that God makes a vow in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews pays attention to that. It forms a significant part of his development. And so whether it's Genesis 22 with the vow to Abraham or it's Numbers 14 with a vow to the Exodus generation, those rebels that decided at Kadesh Barnea they were going to fire Moses and go back to Egypt with a new leader. Um, he made a vow to those guys. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. He says, as I live, right? The God who cannot vow a uh, uh, lie and the God who cannot die makes a vow with that kind of language of as I live, you guys won't, <laughs> right? As I live, you will not enter my rest. And then uh, the oath to Jesus in Psalm 110. Uh, the author of Hebrews makes a big deal of that as well when we get to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 7. And so we looked at those all a week ago, and, and if you missed that, it's sitting on the website, and I would urge you to just go get a hold of it. And uh, it's just minding its own MP3 business. You can download it and make it your business, and then uh, listen, to, uh, listen to the MP3 over and over again. The wrath of God did not revoke or undo redemption. Keep in mind, what does verse 11 not say? It does not say, I swore in my wrath, I am unredeeming them. I swore in my wrath, I'm sending them back to Egypt. I swore in my wrath, I'm going to make them slaves again like they used to be. It never says that, not here, not in any chapter of this book. It can't say that because Israel remains a redeemed people even when he's angry with them. You and I remain a a redeemed people even when God is angry with us. When we come under maximum divine discipline in time, if we're living a life that is anti-biblical and we know better, but we're in hardness of heart, we're living it anyway, God will be angry with us. We will not enter into rest. We will come under chastisement. We will come under discipline. If you want more on chastisement, I recommend six o'clock coming back tonight. All right. All of that will happen, but we will never lose our salvation. We might lose everything else. We might be buck naked at the judgment seat of Christ who give us a resurrection body and a robe and nothing else. Okay? Yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire it says. No believer ever loses salvation. So the wrath of God does not revoke or undo redemption. He expressed his displeasure for a redeemed people through the denial of special blessings in time. And that's what happens for us today. We lose our special blessings in time. The special blessing of mental attitude rest, the faith rest that's our heritage, that's our land grant if you will. It's our mental attitude grant of, uh, of peace, of rest, of having a resting mental attitude. And we'll see that as we wrap up chapter 3 and move into chapter 4. Also, I spent a bulk of last week talking about my, the personal pronoun my, right? My rest. My works, my ways, my wrath, my rest. Uh, Again and again and again, Yahweh is speaking and all of these are His. They're His works, they're His ways, it's His wrath and it's His rest. Too many human beings are trying to enter into what they think is rest, their definition of rest, their concept of rest. Forget that. Stop trying to enter into your definition of rest. Enter into His rest. That's what this passage says. I swore in my wrath they would not enter my rest. And the wrath or the rest that he's designed for us is his rest. The rest that he himself rested when he himself rested. And we'll see that. Specifically, it's not some generic concept of rest. Specifically, it is the very rest God himself experienced, enjoyed, and enjoined. He commanded it. He illustrated it. He had fun with it. And then he commanded it. I believe that first day of rest, that Sabbath day, was a marvelous day of rest. And then on day eight, he went back to work again. Okay? But he gave that seventh day, every seventh day, every week, he gave that as a blessing to his people with himself participating. Remember, the Sabbath day is for a redeemed people to worship and love the Lord their God. God participates in that. We should have that, and yeah, we get to do that daily. Day after day, as long as it's called today, we have our Sabbath rest before our Father. We enter into His rest every day if we want to and we should. So uh, just a peek ahead to chapter 4, let me give you a preview here. Uh, We're going to see the real giveaway comes in verse 10. The one who has entered His rest, not your own rest, not your own definition, not what you want rest to be, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That's the secret. That's, how, that's the how-to, okay? And God did it for us in Genesis 2, and we're going to see that. As God did from his. And so therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. How many times does the Bible command us to be diligent? And when it does, right, be diligent to present yourself approved before God's face, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, you realize that takes work. Bible study takes work. Bible classes hard. Studying to show yourself approved is an effort. Likewise, entering into rest is an effort. Be diligent to enter into rest. Does that seem contradictory? Work hard to rest well, we'll deal with it. But how do I do it? Stop working. Rest from His works as God did from His. Fully surrender to the reality that it's a God who's at work within you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Get out of the way. Watch Him work. Celebrate what He does as He works. Reflect upon it and give Him the praise and glory all day, every day for what He does. All right, give it away. We'll get back to that when we get into chapter 4. Now the imperative from verse 12. Take care, brethren. The verb is blepo. It means watch out for, look for this, take care. It is a warning. God never puts stupid warning labels on products like lawyers do today. We get the dumb, you know, the little kid goes home with the Superman costume and there's a lawyer that put a note in there that says, costume does not give the ability to fly. All right, because there's a parent that's going to sue the costume company because their kid jumped off a thing thinking he could fly, thinking he was Superman. So lawyers are constantly putting dumb warning labels, right? You buy an iron and you're not supposed to iron your clothes while you're wearing your clothes. You should take your clothes off first and iron on an ironing board. Don't wear clothes, don't iron your clothes while you're wearing them. See, anyway, we, we live in an amazing generation that I just will be happy to see go away (laughs) when we get these dumb warning labels. The point is, though, God never puts a stupid warning label anywhere in the Bible. And when the warning label that God writes says, take care, brethren, that gets my attention, okay? Because these are holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. They're saved, but He says, watch out, take care, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And so we need to get this. Now, brethren can unbelieve. Get that. A person can believe and not believe at the same time in different ways, in different things. A person can believe in some aspect while retaining an unbelief he needs help with as well. So we're not saying that if you have an evil, unbelieving heart, that by definition you must be an unbeliever. I think we have a flaw in how we use the term. We often use the term unbeliever for someone that is unregenerate, that does not have eternal life, that's going to go to hell when they die. And plenty of passages where it's valid to do that But there are also passages where it's not valid to do that, and there are passages where we need to ask ourselves, how do we handle this? Is this positional or experiential sanctification? How do we handle this unbelief? And so we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, if if I stop walking by faith, what does that make me? It makes me an unbeliever experientially. I'm not believing if I'm not walking by faith. So if I decide this afternoon to stop walking by faith and I'm gonna I'm gonna solve my problems with human effort, or I'm gonna use works to try to please God, or I'm gonna preach a message and be out of fellowship, well then I'm not doing that by faith. Whatever is not a faith is sin. Everything I do, everything every sin I do is not faith. So therefore, I'm, I, whatever time I log in carnality, I'm not walking by faith. Does that make me an unbeliever? Well, vocabulary form. Yes, I don't lose my salvation, but I am at that moment an unbelieving one. An unbelieving one, okay? And there are passages where that becomes significant. If the unbelieving one departs, let him depart. It doesn't say the unregenerate. It says the unbelieving, okay? And there's a whole realm of doctrine in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're familiar with that, marriage and divorce, that I think people abuse and they use it as a weapon, because you've got a regenerate person who's not walking by faith, and they're going to enslave a person because they're not handling Pistuo in a biblical way. Anyway, that's a different message. As we stick with this, I love Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. Do you ever feel like this guy? I do. Sometimes seven days a week. (laughs) Right? Mark chapter 9. Here's a believer who still has who still needs help. He still has unbelief. Well, what is it? Are you a believer or an unbeliever? Yes. He's a believer. He is born again. He is regenerate. But he still struggles with unbelief issues whereby he needs the Lord's help. We all do. Mark 9.24. And this is the thing. Um, so there's a boy and they can't... they're, 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 they're struggling. It's so a large context for this. So uh, verse 16 um, let's see, verse 17. One of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams in the mouth, grinds his teeth, stiffens out. You know, that's not fun. I mean, demon possession is rough, right? I told your disciples to cast it out. They could not do it. So he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And he credits the generation as being unbelieving. And the, the context for this miracle or the disciples' inability to do the miracle was so that Jesus could give this message and illustrate this point. So they brought the boy to him and when he saw him immediately, the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often thrown him both into the fire and the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. That's a pretty insulting statement. You know, you're standing face to face with the creator God of the universe. And you say, if you could do anything. And yet, we pray like this sometimes, don't we? Do we ever pray like this? Say, Lord, I kind of got this problem and I don't know what you can do. but if... What kind of prayer life is that? Lord, here's the issue. It's yours do with it what you want to okay so jesus said to him if you can are you kidding me all things okay not in the greek (laughs) if you can all things are possible to him who believes and immediately the boy's father cried out and said i do believe help my unbelief isn't that beautiful and that, that just preaches the whole message right there because we do believe, we walk by faith, but there will be times and occasions and elements and even, you know, components of things that we're still fuzzy, okay? We're not strong in faith. and You know, we're not even medium. We're kind of weak in some of these things. So we need that kind of help. Mark uh, sixteen fourteen. Mark sixteen fourteen. Afterwards he appeared to the eleven. Now notice who this is. The eleven. Judas is gone, there's the eleven. They gone through the crucifixion, gone through the resurrection, he's appearing to them as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Do you think these eleven are unbelievers? They're gonna die and go to hell? No, they're saved. Absolutely they're saved. But they have unbelief. Saved people can have unbelief. They can have a lot of unbelief. And if you're going through maximum testing, like, oh, I don't know, the Christ got crucified. You've been scattered. That's a tough thing to deal with. And they were not walking by faith. So he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen god gives evidence for which we should believe he gives evidence he has testimony he has scripture he has believers fellow believers to encourage us is through the encouragement of the scriptures and so all this evidence is given and we still don't believe in spite of the testimony in spite of the evidence in spite of the scripture they did not believe those who had seen Him after He had risen. And so He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed, goes on to say and has been baptized, shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Do you notice how disbelieve is an active verb? It uh, is the antithesis of believing. It's, you see, it's not just a default, it's not just a, well, I haven't believed yet, but I'm still thinking about it. Well, you know, There's no such thing as suspended judgment. You're born in Adam; you're already condemned. And if you are given that opportunity and you don't, Scripture here calls that disbelief. Disbelief. All right. Anyway, that's Mark 16, Romans 4:20, Romans 4 and verse 20. And I see. I see. uh, there's faith and then there's hope against hope and, and uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And this is what uh, Abraham's doing here. So Romans 4.16 says, uh, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. It's the only mechanism that God can offer salvation and be a grace uh, operating system and a faith uh, uh, event. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. And so uh, here's faith. And Abraham had faith. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God. Notice, in the presence of him who he had believed. And so there is a past belief, but there is an ongoing presence. Notice you don't stop believing the day you get saved. You keep on believing. You keep on believing. You keep on claiming promises. You keep on living in the word of God. You keep on walking by faith. So in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And maybe you don't understand the how, but God's got the how covered because God promised what he promised. So in hope against hope he believed. Why? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The uh, substance of things not seen. So that he might become a father of many nations according to what had been spoken so shall your descendants be. Never mind that he's 100 years old never mind that he's sexually dead that he and his wife haven't done that in decades. Um, God said your descendants your children. And so he's walking by faith. And no Viagra in 2,200 B.C. Without becoming weak in faith. Notice that? Now, he's a believer, but there's a spectrum for how strong and weak and medium and so forth our faith may be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. That's what we talk about there with his age and performance issues, as good as dad since he was about 100 years old. He lives to be 180, right, 175. But this was just a facet of his marriage life that was uh, done. And uh, also, the deadness of Sarah's womb. She's 90. She's she's past that stage of life herself. How many decades has it been since she's had to deal with those kind of female things? okay. That's, that's over, done with. Yeah, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So notice, a believer can waver in unbelief. A believer can grow weak in faith. Abraham's the example, the prime example of faith. So learn from this prime example and, and be warned that uh, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Unbelief is the failure to accept the promises that God makes. It's the failure to to achieve the work that He calls for us to do, to go where He sends us, to do what He tells us to do. God told them to go into that land, and God promised He'd give them that land. They sent some spies in and said, we can't do it well wait a minute, God told you to do it and God said He'd give it to you. God didn't tell you to do it and then say, let me know if you can do this or not. He said, go do it, I will give it to you. And that's the point. And Caleb and Joshua were the only two faithful spies. The other spies said, we can't do it. And they led the uh, population into their lack of faith. They led the whole nation into their unbelief except for Caleb and Joshua. So unbelief, this is the failure of the Exodus generation. Notice, a redeemed people failed to believe. Hebrews 3.19, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So, uh, verse 16, who provoked him when they heard? God made a promise, God made a statement, they heard it. And yet they provoked him. Indeed, not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. A redeemed people provoked the Lord. With whom was he angry for 40 years? Those guys. Those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So God gives a command. God makes a promise. Are you going to trust the promise? Are you going to obey the command? Failure is called unbelief. Disobedience is unbelief. You realize when you don't obey the gospel, it's called disobedience, it's called unbelief. Obedience to God is always on a faith basis. All right, not able to enter because of unbelief. So that's our warning. Now we get to us. uh, This is our warning. We don't want to have an evil, unbelieving heart. I can have an evil, unbelieving heart even though I'm a believer, even though I'm saved understand that the new heart we receive in Christ does not eradicate the old heart we had in Adam got that we get a new heart in Christ when we're saved but we still have the old body the old heart the old nature it's still there it does not eradicate the old heart now now then we have a choice which heart are we going to pursue which coat are we going to wear Daily volitional choices must be made as to which heart we put on. Are you going to walk in the light today or walk in darkness? Are you going to walk in fellowship or walk out of fellowship? Are you going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ or are you going to fulfill the lusts of the flesh? And it's an either or. You can't wear both at the same time. You either, you got to put off that old man, put on the new man. And the scripture uses this uh, imagery of uh, of a, uh, a robe or a coat, okay? I have a gospel song I like, a quartet gospel song called Two Coats. And it it addresses this various issue. That old coat is what I had from Adam. And it's old and it's full of holes and it smells, it's nasty. But we like it and we go back to it a lot, (laughs) okay? But then we have a new coat. And this is one that my Savior bought for me. And it's expensive, Because the price he paid is everything, himself. But he's given me this new coat. Now, which one do I want to put on? Which one am I going to put on today? All right. And I don't want to take off Jesus. I don't want to put that old coat on, but I can. The scripture says again and again and again. The dog returns to its vomit. That old nature is still very much capable. Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Paul didn't regret the unbeliever he used to be back before he got saved. He was regretting his present status. He says, I am the chief of all sinners. Right here, right now, today, even while I write 2 Timothy. Paul said, I am the foremost of all, not I used to be back in the day. All right? Psalm 51. Do we get this? Let's make sure we're solid on these. Psalm 51. And this is a good, uh, this is his David's confession when he gets caught with uh, Bathsheba adultery. Now he is saved, he is a believer. A lot of times I turn here when I'm turning to things like um, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. It's a great verse for total depravity. It's a great verse for who we are in Adam. That we are human beings. And hey, guess what? You know? Raise your hand if your mom birthed you, right? If, you, if your mother was a woman, uh, then uh, guess what? He who is born of a woman, how do we how can we be righteous before God? So in sin my mother conceived me. That's true for every human being. We are born sinners. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. But he has to confess this. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now David's a believer. He's saved, but he's been in carnality now for nine months and longer. And um, he had prolonged carnality that led up to the Bathsheba adultery. And then he kept it covered up, murdered her husband, and kept it covered up until the baby was born. He's, He's probably had more than a year in darkness. I don't think the Bathsheba thing was within the first three months of I think he was in a lot of darkness from the last year and didn't go to war when war season came back around. Anyway, um, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. You've gone through some discipline. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So he's confessing and we do the same thing. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he goes on to say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, if you've had a prolonged time in darkness, you might be rough the first uh, days, weeks, months. How long have you been in the darkness? Okay, And so, yes, you have instantaneous spirituality. You confess your sins, you're forgiven. Boom! You're walking in the light, you're in fellowship, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You are forgiven. But don't think you're out of the woods yet, okay? Because you're still very close. Those woods, that carnality is still very, very close. And if you've had a prolonged time of darkness, then you have a, a vulnerability, a spiritual vulnerability to be on guard for. And it could be time. And so David, I think, addresses this when he says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. That he, and he's going to have a long recovery time. He says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we don't have to worry about that as New Testament believers, but Old Testament believers did. Very few even had the Holy Spirit to start with. And uh, if a judge like Samson decided to become a loser, then uh, the Holy Spirit would stop coming upon him. So David doesn't want that to happen. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Right now, Father, my volition is very weak, so I'm surrendering it to you. Sustain me with a willing spirit. You give me the positive volition. You give me the willing spirit so I can keep short accounts, I can stay in fellowship longer and not keep... I don't want to do that up and down roller coaster, in and out, in and out, back and forth. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. You know, one of the best things you can do to, to guarantee your re- recovery from reversionism, start warning other brothers. Start warning other sisters. Get, let them know, hey, you know what? I've been there. I've, you're doing, what you're doing is taking you down a path. Get off that path. Here's where it goes. And teach them. Don't be so prideful. Well, I don't want them to know I used to have a sin problem. Really? You don't love them enough to warn them against that? Take up your cross and follow Christ. Warn them about this sin issue. Anyway, um, this is what we deal with. And so this is a choice. Which heart are we going to put on? We're going to put on the new heart that Christ creates, that Christ gives us, especially as New Testament believers in Christ. That new heart is Christ himself. Far greater than David could even imagine in Psalm 51. All right, how about Romans 13. Romans 13. Now, clearly this whole book is written to believers and the uh, admonishments that are all here to believers it says in verse 11 uh, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor therefore love is the fulfillment of the law do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed got that? We believed. We're all saved. And today, the rapture is that much closer or physical death or what have you. I don't know. I I hope it's today. Okay? The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Now, again, this isn't about turning over a new leaf and stop doing bad things and do good things and try to earn your salvation. Nothing like that. We're already saved. And since we're saved... Quit acting like an unbeliever, okay? Since we're saved, get rid of that stuff. Lay it all aside and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Quit living like an unbeliever. Take that coat off. Put the new coat on, put the new heart on. Put, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to his lusts. See, so the fact of the matter is before you do any sin, overt sin, you have a sin of omission that takes place when you take off the Lord Jesus Christ. When you stop walking by the Spirit. When you stop walking by faith. So as soon as you take off that new coat you're already making provision for the flesh. Ready to put that old coat back on again. All right, And as we saw in Galatians, when you walk by the Spirit, is it possible to sin? No. It's impossible to sin. Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't sin when you're walking by the Spirit. You can't sin when you're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's preventative, prophylactic. You're making no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. So put that coat on. Keep it on. Ephesians 4. 22 through 24. Now, again, he's talking to believers. This I say, verse 17, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. That was your old life. That's what you used to do. You've got a new life now in Christ. So quit walking that way. Walk the new way. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, today if you would hear his voice, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, remember those bad old days? your former manner of life, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Now notice a couple things there in that verse. That old self is still within your sovereignty. It's still within your reach. It's within arm's reach. You are to lay it aside. And it still exists. It was not eradicated. It exists and it's getting stronger. As it says, it is, present tense, presently being corrupted. Your sin nature gets worse the older it gets. So does mine, we all do. Being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And then, verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2 right there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So you get under teaching, you get under Bible class, You listen as the Lord speaks to you today if you would hear his voice. And put on the new self. Well, wait a minute. Didn't that just happen when I got saved? Wasn't that automatic? When he saved me, didn't he give me a new self? Yes, he did. But in addition to the positional truth reality is this experiential truth admonition. We all must do this all day, every day. Put on the new self. So which one do you want to wear? There's two coats. Which one do you want to wear? Wear the new one. Wear the one Christ gave you. And so uh, put on the new self, and, and which really comes in the consequence of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So confess your sins, get back in fellowship, get under teaching, be renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you can put on this new coat, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Now, this is just three short verses in Ephesians 4, but Colossians, boy does Colossians spell this out. Colossians 3, verse 9, 10, 12, 14, 15, 16. I think he's making a point, you know? Something that gets repeated over and over and over again like that? Colossians 3, 9. And again, believers, Set your mind on the things above. You have been raised up in Christ. This chapter is all about being saved. And and where where is your attention focused? On the things above. And consider the members of your earthly body to be dead. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not like you used to walk, okay? You used to do that. Verse 7, in them you also once walked, even when you were living in them. When you were spiritually dead, you did a lot of walking. And it was after the flesh. It was after the course of this age. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech from your mouth. Stop lying to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So since there's a positional truth reality, make it an experiential reality every day. And to put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's 9 and 10. How about verse 12? As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Does this sound like the fruit of the Spirit? Sure does. So this is just another way to think about how do I stay in fellowship? Why do I stay in fellowship? What are the benefits of staying in fellowship? Well, you're putting this coat on. You're putting this heart on. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love. Think of that maybe as an extra item that goes on over top of the coat. (laughs) Okay? Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Do we, do we let it rule? Do we submit to it? Is this what we're doing? Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it richly dwell within you. I love these passive imperatives. Let them happen. Let them happen. So all day, every day. But it becomes a volitional battle. These expressions would not be given over and over and over again if it was not the case that, uh, that these things are things that we struggle with. The presence of an evil, unbelieving heart does not indicate a loss of salvation. Are we clear on that? It means that the believer is not putting on the heart he's supposed to put on. He's going back to that old nature. And we do that every time. Every time when we sin, that's what we're doing. So quit doing that. Quit doing that, because if you do that consistently, you do that long term, you do that, you find yourself in apostasy. And that's what we deal with here is apostasy. What is falling away? What is apostasy? Is it losing eternal life? Is it losing regeneration? Is it losing eternal glory? What is, what is apostasy? Falling away, apostasy. Listen, let's use the Bible's definition. Let's not use medieval Roman Catholicism definition which finds itself in too much of Protestant Christendom as well, this theological thing of apostasy, is not biblical. Falling away is what the Bible defines. Apostasia is the noun, and apo is away from, stasis is to stand, and so you're standing away from, you're departing, you're falling from grace, all these idioms are used. It is not loss of salvation or a cessation of eternal life. It is a departure from God's living presence, God's service, and God's fellowship. Falling away apostasy is a departure from God's living presence, God's service, and God's fellowship. And again and again we see it. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. We don't Any of us can fall into apostasy. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation or we go to hell when we die. It means that we have fallen from God's living presence. He reconciled us to have fellowship with Him and we've fallen from that. A departure from God's living presence. We're not walking in newness of life like we're supposed to be. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might maybe we will, maybe we won't, but it's a purpose clause and it's left to our volition for fulfillment, subjunctive mood so that we might walk in the newness of life. And many of us do, I want all of us to. Some of us don't and that's got to stop. We must all walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And that's not someday when we die and go to heaven. That's right here, right now. We should be walking in that newness of life right here, right now. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Well, are we? Are we laying it aside? Are we picking it back up again? Are we uncrucifying it again? Are we wearing it again? Because we're having fun in our carnality. So that we would no longer, might no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8, now if, and we have, we have died with him, we believe we shall also live with him. Not when we get to heaven, not when we get there, right here, right now. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, right here, right now, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're born again. We have this living hope. We walk in the newness of life. We never have to sin again. So Take off that old self. Put on the new self. Every morning when you get dressed, put on the new self. Right? He uses these terms. We all get this. The youngest of children in this room can get this. If you're old enough to dress yourself, you get this. Everybody here got dressed this morning. Thank you. And guess what? Nobody got dressed by accident. You chose what to put on. Right? Maybe I'm wrong, but I just, it seems to make sense to me. Unless you got dressed last night and went to sleep dressed and I tried to do that. I could sleep longer before I go to school in the morning. Anyway, Um, but I still did that on purpose and I did that myself the night before. So the the, the metaphor holds. You don't get dressed on accident. You don't just, you know, show up one day thinking, how did this get on? What do I right? And the, and the believer in carnality that wonders how he got there is lying to himself. He knows how he got there. You know how you got in carnality. You wanted to. You stopped walking by the Spirit. You stopped wearing Jesus Christ. And so we have a falling away a departure from God's living presence. There's also a departure from his service in Hebrews 9.14. You cannot exercise your priestly ministry in carnality. It just can't happen. Hebrews 9.14 So we are cleansed. We are called for service. And this is what it's about. Verse 11 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater, or more perfect tabernacle. Isn't that beautiful? Made without hands, that is to say, not of this creation. The veil of the earthly temple was written too, but he didn't go in there. No reason to go in there. He went to the third heaven, entered into the real temple and operated for us not through the blood of goats and cows but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all having obtained eternal redemption. The sacrifices given in the earthly replica have to be given again and again and again once a year every year. Jesus went one time into the holy of holies in the heavenly places and purchased our redemption. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more With the blood of Christ who, notice, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. He is the priest and he is the offering and the altar is his own soul. And he offers himself to the Father. And what's this do? Cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what apostasy rejects. When you fall into apostasy, you are falling from the capacity to serve the living God. you are falling it's a departure from god's living presence it's a departure from god's service You've got to stay in fellowship for the blood of Jesus Christ his son to keep on cleansing us from all sin and then ultimately departing from his fellowship psalm forty two two psalm eighty four two we've taught this this is Basic spirituality, you're in fellowship, you're out of fellowship. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Man, yeah, if I'm going to appear before Him, I've got to, I can't be in apostasy. I can't be in carnality. I must be in fellowship because I must appear before Him. We're here this morning. Workmen needing not to be ashamed. Presenting ourselves as workmen needing not to be ashamed. If we present ourselves, what does that mean? We're in His presence. Psalm 84, 2. So if I'm uh, in apostasy, I'm not panting and I'm not appearing before Him. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Believer and apostasy loses this. Loses this presence, loses this fellowship, loses this intimacy. So falling away is apostasy. It's not the medieval Roman Catholic dogma of apostatizing whereby you renounce Christ, whereby you declare yourself to be no longer a believer in Jesus Christ, and you stop believing. Well, guess what? If you stop believing, doesn't matter. If you are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. If you renounce your external membership in the church universal, doesn't matter. Okay? Once saved, always saved, I tell you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. We are presently eternally saved ones. So the whole idea that that uh, you can take yourself, you can apostatize and go out of, you can renounce Christendom and embrace Islam or all that other stupid stuff, all of that is not biblical. All of that falls under the Roman magisterium system whereby you need them to get you there anyway. And so yeah they can kick you out, they can anathematize you, they can excommunicate you and you can anathematize yourself, you can apostatize yourself in the Roman system, not in the New Testament not in the biblical uh, mode. The Bible says apostasy is a departure from the living presence, the service and the fellowship of God. That's what we depart from. And when it says, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, that's a warning we better pay heed to. And then start encouraging one another. I I find this fun too. We'll get into this and and right now it's the top of the hour, so we're going to go to communion here in a moment. But the uh, the antidote to um, apostasy or the antidote to maybe vulnerability, you think maybe you're going to have this heart, you think maybe you're going to You're going to fall away. Well, encourage one another. It's the function of believers in the church. And it doesn't say, hey, you're a weak sister. You're on the verge. You're on the verge. This is going to be a problem for you. It doesn't say go and find somebody to wipe your nose. Go and find somebody to encourage you. You get busy encouraging somebody else. How about that? And then what do you know? Reciprocally. They encourage you. And sometimes just your activity. I've called, I've called people to go and encourage them. I've called them on the phone. I've gone to visit them. And I've gone. My purpose for going there is to encourage them. And I walk away more encouraged than ever before. How does that happen? You know, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Call Dorothy Braun on the phone sometime. Just try to encourage Dorothy Braun sometime and you will be blessed. You will be encouraged when that phone call is over. And you'll think, wait a minute, I was, I was attempting to encourage her. How does that happen? Well, we'll deal with that. Day after day, as long as it is still called today, the daily emphasis for our church-age priesthood is there, and we're going to see it. It's not Saturday. It's not the seventh day. It's not Sunday. It's not the Lord's Day. It's not the first day. It's today. Our Sabbath rest is today. So we need to encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today. All right. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this truth. I pray, Father, that everything we've studied we will digest, we will apply. I pray, Father, as we transition into our Lord's table remembrance that we would be ever mindful of our new nature in Christ and the blessing we have. There's warnings about taking communion in an unworthy manner, and yet, Father, you've made every provision for us to be here, not in our own worthiness, but in the worthiness of Christ. And so, Father, we're saved, we're in fellowship, we love you, we appreciate what your Son has done on our behalf, and we want to proclaim that yet again. Once again, today is our blessing to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, thank you for equipping us to do this this marvelous act of worship together. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to have our third hymn.